Unleavened Bread Ministries presents From your hands, your feet, your side Unleavened Bread Bible Studies with David Eels Can quench my thirsting soul Purest water make me whole Let your streams of mercy flow Oh Jesus, I trust in you Greetings, saints. Many blessings to you. Thank you for joining us today for the Unleavened Bread Bible Study. Amen. Father, bless us today. Bless us with wisdom, discernment. Please help people to understand the things that are coming here. And uh, we praise you for it. We praise you that they'll be able to retain these things and understand them. In Jesus' name. All right, we're going to call this Beast. To bring in the harvest, we're going to see uh, some very interesting, very important things here because of the things going on in the world. Thank you so much for paying attention. All right. First thing I'm going to share with you is a little piece of the revival list, uh, date November 21st, 2008. Uh, leading up to a revelation back there that was given to Robert Holmes. And that was called The End of Empire America. Okay. And this is a note from Mario Lou in uh, 16th of October, 2008. I was in a prayer meeting with Robert Holmes and Kurt Fensel, who was visiting us from the USA. Uh, Robert shared with us a vision he had recently received. Robert had a vision of Alexander the Great standing victorious in the middle of USA. We discussed about Robert's vision in some details. Alexander the Great in the vision was a foreign-looking man. He was surrounded by many U.S. citizens who seemed to welcome Alexander as their leader. I asked uh, Robert whether there were any signs of violence, and Robert said no. Um, I remember God has given similar visions before about Alexander the Great conquering the USA, and we did not understand God's meaning then. Now that God's repeated this vision, I felt that there is significance in this and asked God for more revelations such as, which country is conquering USA? Who is Alexander, etc.? But God did not give us any clear revelations apart from saying that Alexander took Babylon without bloodshed. So after the U.S. election, Robert recognized that the Alexander he saw was Obama. And then God revealed more information. Uh, these revelations are enclosed, and we need to pray. So here's uh, Robert Holmes' revelation uh, uh, called The End of Empire America. This article will cover a range of issues which have been brewing for 6 to 12 months in my heart. History will judge America as an empire. 
That empire is coming to an end. The election of Barack Obama is a significant prophetic event. Of course, that was the election back then, okay? Uh, marking the sunset of that empire and the rising of other powers in the earth who represent ancient powers and civilizations. In other words, he's saying the same thing I've said, that these represent ancient powers and civilizations. These ideas have consequences for believers living both in the U.S. and the countries uh, who rely on her, like Australia. Okay, my thoughts are, Barack Obama became president of deep state-ruled Babylonian America. And although he severely weakened America, he did not conquer her during his presidency. Remember that. I'm not saying it, he won't. I'm saying during his presidency, he did not. Okay. So uh, Hillary was, of course, to be Obama too, and would have finished the job. But God used a modern-day Cyrus of the media Persian Empire to conquer Babylon, America. That's what happened historically, and that's what's happening now. Clearly, this is President Trump, who, as a Cyrus, also discovered the hidden treasures of darkness. Yes, that was in underground tunnels of darkness that they discovered this. And that's all spoken of in Isaiah 45, which um, Trump is following lockstep. So using this and other reforms as a lure, President Trump has come to lead a mighty alliance of nations, where he also set the people of God free from Babylon to rebuild the kingdom of God, just as Cyrus did, and also bankrolled it with Babylon's stolen loot, just as Cyrus did. Okay, so... No one else has followed in the steps of Cyrus but President Donald Trump. Um, keep in mind, there are not two kingdoms spoken of here in, in which Obama entered at that particular time. That's not two kingdoms. There's another kingdom involved here. Uh, it's three kingdoms, okay? Original Babylon ruled by the deep state Obama then Babylon under Cyrus Trump, and then comes this Babylon conquered by Alexander the Great, whom Robert saw as Obama in his vision. Okay, so it looks like Obama could come later. Uh, I'll explain that. It was reported by the military that Barack Obama was arrested for his crimes, taken to Gitmo, and there he was given a monitoring boot and told to play his part under their direction. But he rebelled, and they took him back to Gitmo and shot him. However, it was after this that the military began to discover clone-growing labs and destroying them around the country and other places. Uh, that were manufacturing copies of the important deep state criminals like Obama. So after they discovered this, then they realized, oh, we could have taken out a clone, you know, or at least I did for sure. 
So after they learned how to tell the difference between a clone and the original, I believe it is likely that the deep state had their clone of Obama available when they took clone Obama back in and shot him. So Obama may still be out there and calling the shots for the deep state. Under the deep state, I should say. Because he's not a head. Uh, he is um, one in the chain of command, right? So remember, Alexander did not come until after the media Persian Empire uh, under Cyrus, which is now Trump. So Alexander came after Trump. Okay? So, uh, and of course, Trump conquered Babylon, okay, and uh, Alexander is to conquer his kingdom, okay? It was deep state Obama, Babylon, uh, and then Trump, Media, Persia, and then Alexander, the Grecian Empire, okay? Obama may be back in the third empire as an Alexander to conquer Trump. Remember, history must repeat. Ecclesiastes 1 and 9 says, That which hath been is that which shall be, and that which hath been done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. Is there a thing whereof it may be said, See, this is new? It hath been long ago in the ages which were before us. That's very clear. Very clear. You want to know what's going to happen? It's already prophetically written in history, what's going to happen again. Okay. So we know the prophecies were manifest through history naturally as these three kingdoms. But somehow these uh, beast kingdoms must be repeated, and we are watching it. Another thing that should not be forgotten Obama was a figurehead for the deep state and their fourth-generation AI computer, which they followed. Uh, Trump's steps came from a fifth-generation AI computer that was programmed by the people pushing him. Okay, so that's enabled them to stay a little bit ahead of the deep state and uh, so on. So I'm not taking anything from Trump. He is a genius, no doubt about that, in his own right. Um, Alexander had political power back home holding down the fort. Um, Revelation's seven-year tribulation beast, both the dragon and the beast, listen, had seven heads, not one. Seven heads, not one. This is a mistake. There's no foundation in the Scriptures for their, this one guy rising up to rule the world. Oh, yes, one guy's are rising up, but they're all under the thumb of a lot of people. So nowhere in the Bible does it describe the one Antichrist beast. Nowhere. Okay, unless you're looking at a type or a shadow in the Old Testament. Now, we had a, t- a type and a shadow coming in the end of the Old Testament. It was Jesus. And what did what happened when the New Testament started? Jesus became a corporate body called the body of Christ. Yes. So, see absolute biblical proof 
in our book, Hidden Manna for the End Times. If you want to know the real truth about this, it's all Scripture. Okay. Jesus said there would be many antichrists. That's all he said. Only in parables of dreams, visions, or types, there is described a man, and sometimes a very big man, like one I just recently shared. And it's a very, very big man, which identifies him as a corporate body head. Okay, Jesus is a huge body. A lot of people have seen his body in the earth as a huge Jesus, <laughs> you know. So that's, we've received the interpretation we have. And also, if Obama does not end up being Alexander, Alexander is still coming. Okay, so let's go back to Robert Holmes's revelation here. Alexander cometh. In 1999, as I prepared to travel to the U.S. on ministry, the Lord gave me a very unusual prophetic word. He said that in the days of Babylon, when her walls stood wide and her leaders stood tall, her defenses were strong and her campaigns victorious. Well, let me say that does not describe uh Obama's Babylon. Babylon under the Trump alliance of nations, it has described in the years that he was uh, physically in office, not saying he's not in office now, he's over the military now, okay? But this describes him. He is conquering, okay? So then Alexander the Great, Obama, maybe, question mark, I put, uh, came and defeated her. In the same way, my Alexander will stand in the very midst of the United States of America. Well, the phrase, he says, in the same way, indicates that America's walls are wide, her leaders stand tall, her defenses are strong, her campaigns until now have been victorious. Okay, this best describes Cyrus Trump's alliance. Not Obama. Obama brought the military down, made us weak, etc., etc. So that this best describes uh, Cyrus Trump's alliance campaigns over Babylon. But a man like Alexander, he said, someone God refers to as my Alexander, will stand in the midst victorious and defeat her. Well, Alexander the Great a Mediterranean Greek defeated Darius the Mede in 331 B.C. Of course, Darius was in office because of Cyrus. (laughs) Yes, Cyrus had a huge kingdom, and lots of people were ruling. Okay, so at the Battle of uh, Gargamela, Darius ruled Babylon due to Cyrus's victory. And the gates of Babylon swung open to him. Uh, that's Alexander Obama. Mm-hmm. When he was just 25 years old, he stood in the midst of the courtyard declaring himself king. He then spent considerable time and effort trying to restore Babylon to its former glory. Let me say that neither Alexander nor Obama are capable uh, of doing that. 
because uh, God decreed America's fall. It is written in the Scripture. And I'm pointing it out to you right now. I'm going to point it out to you some more. As I prayed in preparation for going to the U.S. two weeks ago on ministry again, I had a vision of a map of America from high above. There, there, almost in the center of it, was a marketplace. And I zoomed down towards the marketplace, and I saw a man standing there. I recognized by the Spirit that it was Alexander the Great. Standing in a dusty sandstone area, sword lifted high and victorious. I believe that God's Alexander is Barack Obama. Well, um, I think he could be right. And I just say, if so, and I don't doubt it, he would come after the Trump alliance to conquer it. Trump has prepared everything for the beast, the one world order, the world economic system, complete control and knowledge of everyone's business, <laughs> yes, uh, through satellites and artificial intelligence. Cyrus Trump will be good to give time for the reformers to mature the saints for when the beast makes war on them in the second half of the tribulation period. Okay. And back to Robert. He said, He has now stood in the middle of America and declared his victory speech in Grant Park in Chicago. There he prophetically declared, Change has come to America. Yes, true. It has. Barack, apart from having the appearance of a Middle Eastern or African man, is also very young and inexperienced like Alexander. And Barack Obama has not even had a full year in his Senate position. That was written back then, right? I do not question the right of a 47-year-old to rule a nation, but his inexperience is not reduced by his amazing oratory skill. Quote, Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout uh, or in all the earth. Psalm forty-five, sixteen, NIV, he writes. He represents the end of Empire America as we know it, and the opening of a new regime, one which, like Alexander, represents a conflagration of old powers. Oh, there you have it again, a conflagration of old powers. Now, I'm just explaining you what those powers are here, okay? Um, but we know that Alexander Obama, question mark, conquers Cyrus Trump's America. The Alexander Grecian Empire came after the Cyrus Trump Media Persian Empire. And, uh, Robert went on to say, European, Middle Eastern, and Asian, he will try to restore America's glory, but in doing so, relegate her to second position on the global scene. Well, we know um, Obama did everything he could and didn't quite finish, finish the job. Like I said, Hillary was supposed to do that. Okay, Obama's job was to conquer America, but failed to finish the job. And he may be back as Alexander to 
conquer Trump's America. Okay. The prophet Daniel, who wrote his book from 605 to 530 B.C., predicted Alexander would head a world power around 200 years before it happened. And you can see in Daniel's chapter 2, 7, 8, and 11 this truth. In Daniel 2, his empire is described as a belly and thighs of bronze uh, or brass. Uh, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, uh, Daniel 2, 31 through 32, and verse 39, in uh, Daniel 7, it is described as looking like the leopard with wings. Okay. So, my question, how long will the Trump political revival last? Well, he's still doing his job. They're marching more and more people down to Gitmo and at least four other places and uh, either executing them or trying them and uh, imprisoning them and uh, whatever. Okay. So let me just continue with this train of thought. First, remember that we saw in Ecclesiastes 1, 9, and 10 that history must repeat according to God. Daniel 2 and 32 says, As for his image, its head was of fine gold. That's Babylon. Its breast and its arms of silver. That's Media Persia in order, right? Its belly and its thighs of brass. That's Greece. Its legs of iron, its feet part of iron and part of clay. That's Rome which is yet to come too. Uh, Thou sawest till uh, that a stone was cut out without hands, that's God's kingdom, which smote the image upon its feet that were of iron and clay and break them in pieces. Yes, when did this happen now? Well, did it happen uh, back then? Uh, Not to the extent that the rest of these verses teach. Okay, this is an end time thing here. It's um, yes, Rome did come and conquer, but not like is being said here. We'll read on. Verse 35. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, the gold broken in pieces. Here's the key. Together. Together. You remember the stone smote the toes, the ten toes and crumbled it all together. The whole kingdom folded, and God's kingdom uh, conquered. So, obviously, this didn't happen in the historic view of these consecutive empires, because this comes in our time. We're clearly seeing an end-time fulfillment beyond the natural fulfillment of this prophecy. And Robert went on to say, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away, so that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. The whole earth. That didn't happen back then. Uh, so obviously this has never happened before our day. This is the end of all these beast empires at the hands of the kingdom of God, which takes over the entire earth. 
This is an end time thing we're looking at. And there's two views that we can see here. The historic chain of beast kingdoms and an end time fulfillment of all of them together, one right after the other. And Daniel said of the historic kingdoms in Daniel 7 and 12, And as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So this is... This was true because their leadership was conquered and died, but their seed continued and multiplied down to our season and time. We still have all of those kingdoms with us because the seed of them is still with us. The original leadership died, but now it's being replaced by another leadership. Okay? To our season and time, in which they are given similar leadership, so as to repeat history. The book of Revelation predicts or depicts the end-time beasts as having seven heads, which are the same ones that Daniel identified in his day as those progressive kingdoms. So the seed of all these empires is with us today, except far larger, and they are uh, joined in one corporate beast that covers the earth. It's seven heads, but it's one body. Okay, not one head, seven heads. And uh, one of its heads was smitten and revived. One of its heads. You don't know anybody out there that has seven heads, do you? You don't know any beast leader that has seven heads. Okay, so it's a parable. Get the. <laughs> we have to get the picture here. Okay, the nations are uh, joining together just like they never really did in the U.N. And of course, they all foresaw saw that the U.N. would rule the earth. And uh, but we have another U.N. now. We're seeing it come together. We're seeing this uh, alliance coming together. Truly, all nations in unity because they're being bribed. So because they have all that. Uh, hidden treasures of darkness to divvy up. Okay, how long will it last? Well, uh, it's going to be a beast kingdom, a one beast body until the end. That's all the world outside of Christ. One beast body until the end. Seven heads. And the crowns are going to be on the heads. Okay, so uh, the end time interpretation is here. Verse 44. In the days of those kings, notice that these kingdoms were broken together at the end, but it was still in the days of those kings. In the days of all those kings, when are they joined? When are they all living together? (laughs) Now. And this seems to say that another quick fulfillment of this prophecy is now at the end. Shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed? So in the days of those kings, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, nor shall the sovereignty thereof be left to another people. In other words, he was ruling through these beast kingdoms, 
uh, especially his people who were in rebellion and needed to go to their cross and needed these people to put them on their cross, right? Okay. So, but this time the Lord is going to rule personally through his kingdom, not all these beasts. But it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. When could this happen? In these days. And it shall stand forever. Clearly, the worldwide kingdom of God, with its leadership, by the way, in these days, which is Jesus through the man-child, will conquer the worldwide beast. And for as much as thou sawest that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof is sure. And here it is again. If you wasn't convinced that time, listen to this one. Daniel 7 and 3. And four great beasts came up from the sea, divers one from another. The first was like a lion. Sounded like they all came up together, right? The first was like a lion. Uh, that's Babylon in Britain's dominion. That was their symbol, the lion. And had eagle's wings. That's Babylon in the U.S. dominion. You know, because we have the eagle and the wings, right? I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet as a man. Could be that the Air Force will be taken down. And a man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second, like unto a bear. Well, that was Cyrus Trump's Medo-Persian Empire. They had the symbol of the bear, right? And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus unto it, Arise and devour much flesh. Well, this alliance, this Medo-Persian Empire, is doing just that. And after this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard. Okay, here comes Alexander Obama, question mark. Uh, again, I don't doubt this. Um, I'm, I can't make it a thus saith the Lord yet, but um, I don't doubt it. Who inherits the one world economic and technological empire of Cyrus Trump. Yes, Alexander the Ob uh, possibly Obama is going to take over everything that's prepared by Trump. Okay. So, which had upon its back four wings of a bird. The beast had also four heads. Okay. So, Alexander's four generals who ruled after his death... Uh, and it goes on to say, and dominion was given to it. So these are the four generals that came in after he died. So after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrible and powerful and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces, 
and stamped the residue with its feet. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. Well, the mighty Roman Empire, which will rule all ten horns, that's all ten continental divisions of the earth, as Daniel's ten toes of the seed of all the beasts and uh, the clay. So that Daniel's vision of the beast had ten toes. It was the toes that were hit by the kingdom of God, and all of them were destroyed there. The ten toes, all of them were destroyed there, you see. So God kind of hid this a little bit, and uh, but we're looking at it. So we just received this text by faith at random uh, on 2.18.23. Uh, Daniel 8 and 5. And as I was considering, behold, a he-goat, who was Alexander the Great slash Obama, came from the west over the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Okay. And he came to the ram that had the two horns. The two horns were the Medes and the Persians, right? The empire of Cyrus, that's Trump, which I saw standing before the river and ran upon him in the fury of his power. Sounds like an ambush. <laughs> yes. And I saw him come close unto the ram. Okay, so, you know... If it is Obama, he he is close to the ram uh, now. <laughs> and he was moved with, with anger against him. So notice that they are close together, but there is faction, as we see already. While Trump is finishing off Babylon, Alexander is wanting his job. Yeah. And smote the ram... And break his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled upon him. And there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Okay, so I know that this will sadden many uh, who have their hopes set on Trump, but their hopes should be in God and figuring out what God does with these beast kingdoms because he's still using them. He's still using them to bring his people to their cross, and his people have been totally rebellious against the Word of God, made up their own religion and called it Christianity. You know? So this is going to sadden many people who are especially patriotic. Uh, but as we're going to see, the kingdom of President Trump will not last that long. The church must take advantage of his benefits while we can. He delivered God's people from Babylon's bondage. He, God called him his shepherd. He delivered his people from Babylon's bondage and, and furnished the rebuilding of God's kingdom. He was given us a, a, a brief respite for the church to stand up before a worse kingdom comes and more Antichrist, which we know is going to make war against the saints.
and the he-goat, Alexander, magnified himself exceedingly. Now, we know that sounds like somebody we've just been talking about here, right? Magnified himself exceedingly, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four notable horns towards the four winds of heaven. Again, this is, uh, these are Alexander's four generals who divided up the empire on his death. We'll talk about his death a little later. And out of one of them came forth a little horn which waxed exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. And it waxed great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and of the stars it cast down to the ground. Well, you know the stars in Revelation 12, which was earlier, uh, there was a falling away of the stars at that time. It was a falling away. So this, too, is a great falling away because they took the mark of the beast. You understand? And I don't care what the religions say out there, the mark of the beast is fatal. Uh, we all are born with the mark of the beast uh, in our foreheads, in our minds, the mind of the flesh, and in our hands, the works of the flesh. We're all born with that, but that's curable. But this mark uh, is more uh, physical and will be identified. Okay, And uh, trampled upon them. Yea, it magnified itself even to the prince of the host. Yes, we know that magnified itself that way. And it took away from him the continual burnt offering, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. So this is making war against the saints, isn't it? All right, And taking away the continual burnt offering. So this is mid-tribulation, the mark of the beast, which changes the mind and the DNA. And it appears the funvax, which vaccinates against Christian fundamentalism. Um, and we're going to see the proof of it right here. Daniel 9 and 27. And he shall make a firm covenant with many for one week. That's the seven years, right? Seven days of years, right? A week. And in the midst of the week, that's three and a half years, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. Who are the priests of the Lord in the New Testament? We are. What do we sacrifice? Our flesh on the fire, the, the uh, burning altar of the fiery trial, right? So the burnt offering is taken away. When you get the mark of the beast, you don't follow God anymore. I'm sorry to say, the mark of uh, God does not trump the mark of the beast. God himself said, if you take this mark, you're going to burn forever and ever. Okay. And upon the wing of abomination shall come one that maketh desolate. So the mark causes to cease the crucified life of those who take it. We as priests are our job is to sacrifice our flesh so that we can have this other kingdom, right? And even unto the full end, and that determined, shall wrath be poured out upon the desolate. Well, how did they get desolate? 
The abomination that maketh desolate is taking the mark of the beast. It is an abomination that maketh desolate because it is a reprobation. The, the, uh, the Lord departs from the person that does this. And it's, they've proven now, by the way, that that's exactly what the mark does. Take away any desire, uh, fun vax, right? Any desire for God. So the third beast brings us to the mid-tribulation. So now I'm going to repeat the fourth beast, okay? Daniel 7 and 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrible and powerful, and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. There's the iron of the Roman Empire. It devoured and brake in pieces, and stamped the residue with its feet. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So, the mighty Roman Empire, which will rule all ten horns, uh, in other words, all ten continental divisions of the earth, as Daniel's ten toes uh, of the seed of all the beasts and the clay, right? Clay was not a part of the original Roman Empire, but it was mixed with the iron, which is a part, which was the original Roman Empire, the seed of the original Roman Empire. So this happens when the dragon, who has crowns upon his heads, changes in mid-trib to crowns upon the ten horns of the beast. Okay? So the dragon lasts for three and a half years, and then the beast comes for the last three and a half years to harvest the saints, except for those who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord. For they are already dead to self, and they don't need to die again. There's no curse upon them, therefore they don't die. But some people are not working towards that end, so they will have to die. The soul that sins must die. Not one jot or one tittle will pass away, right? So, the New Age and their alien demons don't believe the book of Revelation because it doesn't agree with their thousand years of peace. And, of course, um, Trump is, you know, taking advantage of this thousand years of peace. It's a great promise for everybody. It gets everybody encouraged. And, oh, yes, we need to bring in this kingdom, right? No. Now we see that they don't agree with the Old Testament either, the Old Testament prophets. And their prophecies are being proven too. And we're watching it. And Romans 3 and 4 says, God forbid, yea, let God be found true, but every man a liar. So much for the thousand years of peace. And so much for doing away with the book of Revelation, which has a perfect numeric pattern, just like all the rest of the books. And there's no other books that have that pattern. Yes, Revelation is true. And as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy words and mightest prevail when thou comest into judgment. Do you want to prevail when you come into judgment? You must be justified in your words. And you must let God be found true and every man a liar. So, saints, it will take everything God has stated about these beasts to bring in the harvest. You have prayed for, 
right? You've been praying for this. I've been praying for this. We're all praying for this. The harvest has to come in. Well, this is part of it. The fear of the Lord has to be restored. People have to run for cover under the blood, right? So, strive for the bride who is going to escape the beast. So, here's another one that fits so neatly with this. The four generals will conquer Alexander Obama. Um, Eve Brast, 129-2010, shared this dream with us at that time, and it's really clear now. I asked God to confirm my role in this dream as a watchman on the tower. Twice I opened my Bible and put my finger down. The first was Ezekiel 3.21. Nevertheless, if thou warn the righteous man that the righteous sin not, and he doth not sin, he shall surely live. Notice the condition. Because he took warning, and thou hast delivered thy soul. And also Isaiah 21 and 6. For thus hath the Lord said unto me, Go, set a watchman. Let him declare what he seeth. So Eve here represents uh, those watchmen who are watching for the enemy attacks on the Tower of Zion, right? We know what happened. I dreamed I was a watchman standing on the roof of a tower made of logs, crossed at the corners like a log cabin. The tower was coming up out of the Gulf waters off the northwest uh, coast of Florida. Um, And, of course, that's kind of where UBM began in that area, right? And when I had this dream, I had a dream of the tower, too, you know, and it was there, okay? So this this is agreeing with my dream. So when I had this dream, I, I didn't connect it with UBM, she said, but when I was told to send it to David, I realized that he had a dream or vision from the Lord that UBM was represented by a log tower like this. Yes, the Father pointed this out to me. In the same area, but on land. Okay. So, the tower is Zion or Jerusalem. It's called the Tower of the Flock, Micah 4 and 8. And thou, O Tower of the Flock, the hill of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come. Yea, the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. So Micah 4 is indicative of how God will use the bride tower in the latter days. Also typed as the bride in Revelation 21, 9 and 10. And there came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls who were laden with the seven last plagues. And he spake with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. 
that's the bride returning right there. And uh, by the way, the bride is born from above, uh, like Jesus. So this tower also simultaneously existed in the Mediterranean waters, further east off the shores of Israel. Oh, so there's a parallel. This is what it's saying. There's a parallel between Israel and the United States, or the people of God in the United States. Okay, So an elect bride will also be taken out of natural Israel. Okay. I was dressed in an Old Testament Israeli soldier's outfit and standing at the northeast corner of the tower. So the Israeli soldier outfit represents uh, the true New Testament church, circumcised in heart, not in flesh, uh, in its Ephesians 6 armor. It was dark and the wind was gusting. I could feel rain or sea spray on my face, forearms, and lower legs. I was keeping the night watch facing northeast. Suddenly, out of the darkness, Alexander the Great came down and stood to my left. Hmm. So, Obama rules from the northeast of the tower and has been likened to Alexander the Great in other dreams and revelations, indicating his ambition and ability to conquer and take what God is giving into his hands for chastening. God gives uh, these uh, beast heads um, favor so that they can do what they have to do. He said, I want to show you something. Alexander said to her, I want to show you something. He then swung over the north side of the tower and went feet first inside of it through a 24 by 24 inch window that a golden light shone out of. This, this in the tower, which is the tower of the flock, the bride, this golden light shining out of it. Okay. I followed him in the same way. Well, the, we know, we know who's in the tower of the flock, the bride. It's the Lord, right? The golden light in the heart of the bride tower is Christ. And the word, Alexander slash Obama, on the left, will conquer Christianity in America. However, as the Assyrian beast leader, Sennacherib conquered all of Israel but lost 185,000 of their prime men and was assassinated when he tried and failed to conquer Jerusalem. The Bride Tower. So it will be in some form in these coming days. And that area is Second Kings nineteen thirty through thirty seven, right? I saw a vision of America, Eve said, as Nineveh. Oh, that was my vision. Excuse me. Uh, I saw a vision of America as Nineveh, the head of the Assyrian world beast. As Assyria was conquered, other parts of Israel, some of these fled to the safety of the tower. 
And as this happens, the people will seek God and their capital city, the Bride Tower. Right? This is the leadership of God's people. The man-child and the bride who rules under the man-child. In Jesus' day, that represented him uh, and those disciples, those first-fruits disciples that John the Baptist said were the bride. So we're just following the Scriptures, that's all. So inside, there was a very bright white light. When my eyes adjusted, I saw it was a laboratory of some sort with countertops and lab equipment and all around. And in front of the north window that we had entered, there was a double stainless steel sink with a high faucet. Next to it on the countertop was a black microscope. Alexander pointed to the microscope and exclaimed, Look! I looked into it and was sucked through it into a spiritual realm that was dark with black, choppy water everywhere. I was aware in my spirit that it wasn't black just because it was dark. In other words, it's evil too, right? So when I got my bearings, I looked around and I realized that I was on one of the four Greek vessels sailing east at a quick and steady pace. And these could represent the four generals that divided up Alexander's kingdom after they poisoned him, question mark. <laughs> that was a rumor that happened, and it could have been too. Well, the white sails uh, were missing, so, so it wasn't powered by spirit, which is the same word as wind. Right, And the masts were bare, and there were no oars, so it was not powered by man, right? God is powering this, right? So these vessels of judgment have no power against the bride, who is guiltless by God's grace. They do have power against the sinner. They do have power against the world, right? I was standing on the deck of the third vessel to the right. Uh, pestilence and blood? <laughs> well, that sounds familiar. Uh, Corexit, if you remember from the Gulf War uh, mess, um, brought blood disorders and destroyed the immune system, just like the Vax does now. They've been doing this for years, folks. And they've been doing it with vaccines, too, for years. There was one more vessel to my right, making it the fourth. Alexander was standing next to me on the, the deck. I asked the Lord what the four vessels represented, and he gave me Ezekiel five sixteen to 17 Four judgments of famine, evil beasts, pestilence, and blood, the third vessel. Pestilence and blood, the third vessel, and the sword. So, today, these have all been judgments through the deep state. In other words, the Ohio, 
East Palestine chemical dioxin fiasco and other environmental disasters and blood contamination through mRNA vaccines and uh, microscopes are used many times to look at harmful microorganisms representing unseen biohazards in food, water, and air that cannot be detected otherwise. So, I looked ahead to the east and I saw a large bright star, bigger and brighter than any I have ever seen. I knew instantly that it was Christ. Suddenly, two giant branches of lightning struck out sideways to the north and the south of the star through dark gray clouds, and a voice came out of the star that resonated through my whole being on a cellular level. It said, Proceed no further, for truly these are the very end of days. Only the vessel we were on then began to break apart into many broken pieces of splintered wooden planks. Immediately I was caught up away from Alexander, because, of course, the bride is not going to go down in that destruction, who was still on the deck of the vessel. We alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, right? Still on the deck of the vessel. Back through the microscope and into the tower, the tower of the flock, the tower of safety. That's what it is. So in his war against the church at that time of the tribulation, he's going to proceed no further. The end, right? Um, then the bride in these end of days by the edict of the king. This was just as it was when Ahasuerus stopped Haman, who, like Sennacherib of Assyria, died for his attempt on Esther, uh, the bride. Alexander the Great is said by some historians to have been assassinated by poison as he drank a bowl of unmixed wine to Hercules in the palace of Babylon, the Great Eagle. Hmm, yes, that's Babylon symbol, the great eagle. Very interesting. So we're going all the way up in and into the great and terrible day of the Lord. So there seems to be a common thread of death or assassination to those rulers who attack the bride slash tower, right? And I'd like to remind any who read this that a Christian could never do this. For the word says, if a man shall kill with the sword, with the sword must he be killed. Who killed with the sword? Alexander. And love your enemies and avenge not yourselves, beloved, but give place unto the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. Amen. 
Well, I looked to my left where the sink was and noticed a reddish dye tablet to the right of the drain in the right side of the sink. And there was a small stream of water running down onto the tablet, causing a red swirl that ran around the bottom of the sink clockwise before going down the drain. And then I woke up. So, because Jesus, the Word, which is the water of the Word, right, poured out His blood, that's the reddish tablet, unto death, the bride will have life. And uh, if we take the tablet or cure, we will have life too. But I want to tell you, you have to die to self too. There's another death here. Not only did Christ die, but the body of Christ must die. Not physically, doesn't have to, but some will because they didn't and refused to die to self. Okay. So we will have life. And he said, unless we ate his body, the bread and the word, and drank his blood, we would not have life. So we're talking about two sides of the same uh, dragon. Amen. During the meeting, I had an open vision. My spirit man was standing next to the Lord in a wooded area. It was uh, daylight and really foggy. And I think that means a combination of light and dark, representing the opposites of yin and yang, which we will see below. We were standing in front of a black dragon representing the deep state bad dragon, she has in parenthesis, that was sleeping. Then it woke up, and I saw a white dragon come from the left, representing the new age, the white hats, the semi-good dragon. (laughs) I'm going to call it semi-good, and that's in parenthesis too. The two uh, dragons merged together. Oh, no. And when they roared, fire came out of their mouth. So we definitely don't want Babylon Deep State joining the Alliance until at least they have done their job, right? They then flew off above me and the Lord, and after that uh, I had a vision of the yin and yang symbol. So I looked up the yin and yang, uh, and it is a complex relational concept in Chinese culture that has developed over thousands of years. Briefly put, the meaning of yin and yang is that the universe is governed by a cosmic duality. Well, we believe that too, kind of. Uh, different, A little different, but uh, sets of two opposing and complementing principles or cosmic energies that can be observed in nature. Uh, we have a link here that will help explain that to you if you Want to look at the text. There's light and dark. There's day and night. There's good and evil. Yin and yang. Yin and yang, or yin yang, uh, refer to a concept originating in ancient Chinese philosophy, philosophy, where opposite forces are seen as interconnected and counterbalancing. It's commonly represented by the yin yang symbol a circle made up of black and white swirls, each containing a spot of the other. 
So this looks like the deep state is going to try to force Trump into making a deal to join together as it was with Operation Paperclip. Yeah, that resulted in the formation of our current deep state. And a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You cannot join with the wicked, right? Um, the deep state is putting pressure on Trump and the alliance by all of their murders and acts of domestic terrorism. And I think that Trump and the military leaders may be tempted to be discouraged because of the seeming impossibility of taking down the deeply embedded deep state. I don't think Trump knows that the Lord is going to do as he promised and put an end to the deep state Babylon, as we saw that uh, he will bring an end to Alexander slash Obama. So these beasts will put the pressure on the people of this world and the church to fear the Lord and seek his shelter under the blood of Jesus. And I asked the Lord if he wanted us to pray against this merger, and I got a yes. So cast it down, saints, at least for now. Cast down this merger. In Jesus. Now remember, all of these kingdoms are beasts. I'm sorry to tell you. All of them are beasts. Some are better than others, but they're all beasts, and they all are going to fall. And the kingdom of God is going to take them down. There's no way out of it. So, Father, we thank you for this revelation. We want to know what to expect. We, we obviously have to get ready for uh, tribulation. Uh, through much tribulation shall you enter the kingdom. Thank you, Father, for that. In the name of Jesus. And uh, thank you, Father, too, for blessing uh, Brother Michael and the brethren with him and uh, pouring out your spirit among them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. God bless you, saints. We'll do this again sometime. Hello, saints. Good to be back with you again on a great November morning. Let's go to the Lord. Father, in the name of Jesus, I praise you and I glorify you. And I thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy upon our lives. I thank you, Father, for teaching us how to be prayer warriors, how to be, how to pray militantly with the faith that you've given us. And Father, I'll thank you for that. Lord, be with us today as we get this message across. Anoint us to speak the things that you'd have us to speak, Father. That it would be a blessing to everyone out there in the name of Jesus. Well, that's what I want to talk about is faith to pray militantly. You know, the expressions in Christ in whom and in him, they occur more than 130 times in the New Testament. And that's the heart of the revelation of redemption given to Paul. Now, here's the secret of faith. Faith that conquers. The faith that moves mountains. This is the secret of the spirits guiding us into all reality. You know, the heart craves intimacy with the Lord Jesus and with the Father. But you know, this craving can now be satisfied. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7 says this, In whom we have our redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Folks, it's not a beggarly redemption, but it's a real liberty in Christ that we've got now. It is redemption by the God who would say, let there be lights in the firmament heaven and cause the whole starry heavens to leap into being in a single instance. That is omnipotence beyond human reasoning. And this is where philosophy has never left a footprint. Our redemption is a miracle of God's grace. It's according to the riches of his grace. And it's a present tense work wrought through his blood. It's lavish and it's abundant. And our redemption, folks, is a perfect thing. And when you know it, enter into it, and your heart grows accustomed to it, there's going to be an ability in your life that you have never known. Colossians chapter 1, 13 and 14 said, Who delivered us out of the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have our redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Folks, you're delivered out of the power of Satan. You're free, and it's in him that you have your redemption. You have been delivered out of Satan's dominion. You have been translated into the kingdom of the Son of his love, and you're free. You're free from the dominion of Satan. And the hour's going to come when you're going to awaken to the fact that he can't put disease on you, that he can't give you pain, and he can't give you anguish in your body. And that hour is going to come when you'll know that want and poverty are things of the past as far as you're concerned. You're going to shout amid the turbulence and you're going to shout and uh, uh, during the fear of other men. And you're going to shout this, the Lord is my shepherd. I do not want. He makes me to lie down in plenty, in fullness. Because I am satisfied with him. Folks, this redemption is real. Satan's defeated. Disease is outlawed. And want is banished. We're free. John chapter 8 verse 36 says, If therefore the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. John 10.10 says, I came that they may have life and have it, and may have it abundantly. Well, what's life? Folks, life is the nature of God. You may have the Father's nature abundantly. You are in Christ, in the Father's presence. You are in the very realm of life. This realm of life has in it the life that transcends reason. We have eternal life. That's God's very substance. In John 14 and 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He was unveiling his heart to us, showing what he can do to us in our daily life. He can be all that his heart of love desires to be to those whom he has redeemed. And he can be reality to us. He can fulfill every desire of our hearts. 
Galatians 5 and chapter 1 says, Stand fast therefore and be not entangled again in a yoke of bondage. The gravest danger of the believer is the possibility of his lapsing back into bondage after he has been made free. He leaves the realm of the spirit and faith and walks in the realm of the senses. And folks, a sense raising gains that supremacy. He loses his joy in the Lord. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. And we're just now finding out what that can mean to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 says, Wherefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. And this new creation fact gives to you all that it means to Jesus and the Father, whether you know it or not. Paul's revelation is filled with new creation truth. It's God's dream for you to enjoy the fullness of this new creation's privileges. It says the old things are passed away. That's those old things of bondage, fear, doubt, want, sickness, weakness, and failure. They're gone. And some of you have to say, well, that ain't possible. Yes, it is. The new creation is just like the master. He is its head. He is the vine. You are the branch. As he is, so are you. Listen to this in John 15, 1 through 7. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes it away. And every branch that bears fruit, he cleans it that it may bear more fruit. Already ye are clean because of the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. So neither can you except you abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatsoever you will, and it shall be be done unto you. And folks, as long as you deal in doubts and fears, and as long as you sit in judgment on yourself, you ain't never going to arrive. You're never going to enjoy these things. But, if you act on the word, you're going to arrive at that point. When you read, all things have become new, start thinking of yourself as living in this brand new realm. You have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. You have perfect fellowship with him right now. There is an abundance of wealth that belongs to you in this new relationship. So be bold and act your part. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says this, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And if you're his workmanship, You are satisfactory to him. He's pleased with you. 
Folks, we've preached condemnation and sin so long that we don't know how to preach righteousness and to tell the people what they are in Christ. And when somebody does tell them, they feel like it's false teaching. They feel that anything is false teaching that doesn't honor sin and lift it into the place of Christ. You are God's new man. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 15 declares that he brought into being the new man. It says, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances that he might create in himself of the two, one new man. So making peace. And then Ephesians 4.24. And put on the new man that after God hath been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. The new creation knows but one Lord. Jesus is the Lord of the new creation. Now, our graphic statement of facts is in Colossians chapter 2 and verses 6 and 7. As therefore ye receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in your faith, even as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. Ooh, glory to God. No longer are you a weak, beggarly man walking about. His strength is your strength. We're so strong that we're abound in thanksgiving. When we stop abounding in thanksgiving, we deteriorate spiritually. And so we want to pray militantly. Pray militantly. There's an old story going around that Mary Queen of Scots used to say that she feared the prayers of the fiery Protestant theologian John Knox more than all of the enemies of France and England put together because John Knox knew how to pray aggressively. Too many of us kneel down and go to sleep on our knees or we read a few verses in the Bible. Next thing we know, our head's on top of the book. You're knocking out the enemy that way, folks. In the early days of American history, the generals who won the wars or won the battles were the generals who prayed militantly. One day there's a story of a, of a farmer. He approached the camp at Valley Forge. And he heard an earnest voice. And when he came near, he saw George Washington on his knees. And George Washington's cheeks were wet with tears, praying to God. And that farmer returned home and he told his wife, he said, George Washington will succeed. The Americans will win their independence. And his wife asked him, she said, what makes you think so, Isaac? The farmer replied, I heard him pray, Hannah, out in the woods today, and the Lord will surely hear his prayer. He will, Hannah. Thee may rest assured he will. But why was that farmer so sure God would hear General George Washington? Well, I imagine because George was out there praying militantly. Great things depended on his prayer, and great things depend on our prayers. Before the Battle of Gettysburg, when the fate of the nation was hanging in the balance, President Abraham Lincoln was calm and assured, and his generals wanted to know why, and this is what he answered. He said, I spent last night in prayer before the Lord. He has given me the assurance that our cause will triumph and that the nation will be preserved. 
in our time, back in the 50s, General Eisenhower once said, prayer gives you the courage to make the decisions you must make in crisis and then the confidence to leave the results to a higher power. Prayer is not for the purpose of changing God's mind. He already wants us to win and to be victorious, overcoming children more than we want to. Prayer is for changing situations, circumstances, and people's hearts. Prayer is for overcoming and defeating the demons of hell assigned to hinder Christians. And I believe prayer to be the world's greatest untapped resource. Prayer is not something you merely think or talk about. Prayer is something you do. God's power made available to mankind a great resource. Yet for the most part, prayer is not properly understood. I wonder why. Because there is a mystique, a secret that seems to have placed effective prayer beyond the reach of most believers. But the power resources of prayer are attainable. Prayer is a force to be used, a tool to be utilized, a mighty weapon to be deployed. And that becomes real clear as we read Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 10 and 11. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. That's what prayer will teach you to do, folks that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. One little known fact God desires to make plain is that it is possible to stand against the tricks of the devil. But in order to do that, you have to certainly, you have to learn the secrets of prayer. Second Corinthians 10 and 4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God and for pulling down strongholds. Our weapons are not physical or mental. They are spiritual. And one of the best of our weapons is prayer. Now, prayer in action. On more than one occasion, Jesus' disciples witnessed a demonstration of prayer power. Look at Acts chapter 4 and verse 31. And when they, that's the disciples, had prayed, The place was shaken wherein they were gathered together and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spake the word of God with boldness. So here are the conditions. The believers assembled together and prayed. And the results were the place was shaken. They were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and then they spoke the word of God, not with backwardness, no fear, but with great boldness. First they prayed. Then the power came. And if we can get God's people to reach out to God through prayer, we will discover resources of strength, blessing, anointing, goodness, and mercies that we never dreamed about. And if we can convince the world that it's prayer time in our land, the result will be anointing of power that has never been known. There are battles that can be won only When we pray, victories, even over demonic forces, can be ours through prayer. Prayer, when used as it was designed and intended, is a tremendous force, a terrible weapon against the enemy. And I'm talking a prayer that can bring about a world-changing influence. And when it's truly understood and faithfully used, 
Prayer is the greatest source of untapped energy the world has ever known. And to bring about that prayer requires a change in our thinking and in our praying habits. And such prayer among the people of God can change the church of Jesus Christ in America and all around the world. And it don't make any difference if you're in the United States, the, uh, the Philippines, or Japan, or South America, wherever you are, wherever you live. And I can assure you that by your prayers, you can receive and set into motion the power of God. And only through prayer is this possible. How many of you know that united prayer produces united results? And Cornelius learned that when he prayed. Cornelius was a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, it says in Acts chapter 10 and verse 2. Praying together as a family multiplies your prayer power. God tells us that one can chase a thousand and two can put ten thousand to flight in Deuteronomy 32 and 30. And as Cornelius learned, when you unite your home in prayer, you become like an army ready for battle. Prayer can change a person, but it can also change entire families. And when Cornelius and his family prayed unitedly, God performed miracles. He sent for Peter, who was a hundred miles away in the city of Joppa. Peter came and preached to Cornelius, resulting in that man's entire family receiving the filling of the Holy Spirit. And none of those things happened uh, haphazardly. They came about through prayer. And just as prayer changed Cornelius' life and the lives of his family, Prayer can change your life and the lives of those around you. And by learning the secrets of prayer, as Cornelius did, you could also be remembered as a person who changed this world and the world to come. Folks, prayer is powerful. It's that powerful to do. Change the world around you. And you can help others by your prayers. The Apostle Paul spoke of this dimension of prayer in 2 Corinthians 1 and 11. You also helping together on our behalf by your supplication that for the gift bestowed upon us by means of many, thanks may be given by many persons on your behalf. You see, you can become a prayer partner. You can join with others and become a means of helping together in prayer. Cornelius helped his family through prayer. You can do the same. You can bless others. You can help missionaries. You can help your elders and the community and government. All of this and much, much more can be accomplished through your unselfish praying. You can literally release prisoners by praying. When Herod imprisoned Peter, Acts chapter 12 and 5, but prayer was made earnestly of the church unto God for him. God responded by sending an angel to release Peter. That's the kind of power that's still available to God's people through their prayers. That's the same power that you and your prayer group can have. Pray militantly. Pray aggressively. Say this, God, I come against whatever it is, communism, pornography, abortion, or whatever it is, confuse wicked leaders to where they don't know what to do. World leaders, let them be confused, Lord. Let them know there's a God in heaven that they don't have it. 
to pray against the evil in our land. I'm going to tell you a story about a young minister's militancy against, in Ohio, uh, where a bunch of abortion clinics went bankrupt. So much damage was done to these abortion clinics that they sued this minister for $11.5 million. And then they saw that this preacher was happy about the suit as he went about gathering lawyers to fight him. This was Rod Parsley. So they said, well, just forget it. We decided not to sue you. His church prayed militantly. And when they went out on the street corners, they prayed with strength and vigor and power and will. They went out in the whole armor of God. Prayer is one of our main weapons in this spiritual battles. But unless we pray militantly, our prayers are not effective. Prayer also allows us to learn God's strategy in every situation. Get along with the Lord and pray militantly. You're going to receive inspiration and creative ideas from the Holy Spirit, which is going to bring victory in your prayers. There's too many wrong prayers out there. We've got too many soft prayers, too many apologetic prayers. The breath, the extent of our praying is as large, folks, as our asking. God expects us to reach out to the farthest horizons that we can imagine and to use all the strength and all the power that he has made available to us. All of it in Jesus' name. And so you can see prayer is not just a mere uh, reciting of words. Prayer is a relationship with God and with Jesus, his son. Prayer is the speaking of loving words, a love lyric to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And prayer is a personal connection with God. Prayer is alive. Prayer is inspiring. Prayer is powerful, energizing, dynamic. And prayer revitalizes the one who prays. But prayer is not just spiritual recreation. Prayer is doing battle with the invisible forces of darkness. Get aggressive. Get mad at that devil. Stop making apologies to God. If you're consistently going to apologize to God, you're going to have weak prayers. They ain't never going to win victories. God wants you to pray with forth much force. And you don't have to listen. You can kneel down. That's recommended. But you can dance. You can you can stand up and pray. You can swing your arm when you pray. You can yell when you pray, and that'll keep you awake. But above all, you must pray against the devil. Pray against sin. Pray against wickedness in high places. We are going to have to initiate aggressive praying, powerful praying. Jesus prayed with mighty strength. Elijah prayed with strength. James chapter 5, 17 and 18. Elijah was a man of like passions with us, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. And Elijah was one little old preacher with a nature like ours, the Apostle James said. But he beat 750 false prophets, and he called fire down from heaven. That ain't no pipsqueak prayer there. He was in a life and death situation. And without victory, he was going to be a dead man. But it wasn't Elijah who died, was it? 
450 false prophets died, and Elijah did the sword work himself. First Kings 18 and 19 tells us that. Elijah wound himself up militantly and said, Rain, don't come to this part of the world for the next three and a half years because I'm in charge. How would you like to be able to do that yourself? It didn't rain for a period of time. Elijah had prayed. And I'll bet you could hear him for a mile when he prayed. He wasn't a little old sweet tender thing that you could not hear above a whisper. The people who say, I can't pray out loud, they'll yell at their kids at the top of their voices, almost breaking their eardrum. Why can't they pray out loud? The devil's hindering them. He doesn't want them to pray loudly, so he drops thoughts of fear or pride into their mind. God wants his children to know that it's time to get aggressive for him. You must get aggressive in your prayer life to have victory everywhere else. When you start meeting your prayers, God will start answering. Let's pray this. Lord, teach us to be a people that gets away from the defensive and on the offensive forever. I hate being defensive, trying to protect myself. I hate that. I would far rather like to take the initiative. All the time, especially against the devil. And keep him on the run all the time. Beat him down. Get him down and kick him. And you can be God's champion warrior if you want to be. And this is the time to say, in the name of the Lord, my attitude toward prayer is that I am going to pray militantly. Just like Moses did. Just like Elijah did. And just like Jesus did. And Lord, let my prayers be powerful. Prayers that change things. And God help me to pray aggressively. Folks, that's a good winning position to take. Change your prayer style. And you can pray militantly before the Lord. Prayer is invincible. It can't be subdued. No one can hinder or prevent the operation of prayer power. Rulers of great nations have had their laws and decrees defied and altered by prayer. The evil leaders of Babylonia influenced King Darius to defy the power of prayer by casting Daniel into the lion's den. Daniel was unscathed. He was living proof of the invincible power of prayer. Wicked Haman learned too late the invincible power of prayer. His clever manipulations served only to hang him on his own gallows and the one he built for his enemies. It has always been so, folks. Prayer can destroy enemy powers and evil forces. Prayer can build the kingdom of God. And that's always been God's intent. Prayer operates in the lives of those who have provided God with clean, righteous vessels in which His Holy Spirit dwells, in which egotism and self-sufficiency have been done away with. And it's in such lives in which material things have faded 
and the spiritual life is in proper focus that God chooses to display his unlimited power. Evil, self-aggrandizing forces rule the world we live in. Political and economic forces, power-hungry forces that are humanly irresistible, immovable, indomitable, insurmountable, impregnable, unconquerable, and unyielding. Yet all of these forces are but paper tigers in the face of anointed prayer. Before World War II, France believed in this Maginot line, that it was invincible. Germany proved it wrong by simply going around the ends. Germany believed this blitzkrieg manner of warfare was invincible. Yet it was to learn that its best would succumb to a superior force. Yet, when you and I discover the secrets of and appropriate the inestimably superior powers of prayer, the truly invincible whole armor of God the defensive and offensive glories of prayer, we will move into prayer against the enemies of God, the enemies of righteousness, with an assurance, with a joyful abandon, and with an effectiveness we have never known. And when we're faced with such divine power, all earthly powers are subject to defeat. All earthly powers, whether political, economic, or material, uh, military, they are subject to the power of prayer. Everything is subject to the power of prayer. And prayer has no equal. The power of prayer doesn't change. It stands when all other powers fall. World systems change. Ideologies change. Balances of world power change. Balances of economics change. But the power of prayer that is available to us, the power that streams from the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, will never fail. It can't be defeated. And my friend, the secrets of prayer can be yours. And when you discover them, they will fill you with God's living energy. And you will indeed be able to mount up with wings like eagles and not faint, as it says in Isaiah 40. And so we need to develop a militant voice. A militant voice speaks and sings aggressively. There's never been a victorious army that didn't have a song. And when an army wins, the soldiers sing as loudly as they can. Only soldiers going home in defeat have no song. And some churches and some kinds of Christians have been criticized because of their energetic singing. However, if anything, we're just getting tuned up, folks. In other words, you ain't seen nothing yet. And you can tell the devil we said so. Folks, I like aggressive singing. You don't have to wait until the sermon starts in order to come against the devil. You come against him in the songs. Tell him what champions we are. Sing of the glory of God. Sing of his majesty. Sing of the victories that are flowing in our hearts. Hallelujah to the Lamb. And thank God for a new song. We will sing new songs that bring joy. God wants us to sing with mighty aggressiveness, with power, 
with authority in Jesus' name. Folks, I like militant singing. The word directs us to sing a new song, and I believe those new songs are to be sung militantly. Psalms 33, 3 and 4 say, Sing unto him a new song. Play skiffly with a loud noise. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in faithfulness. Glory to God. Psalms 96, 1 and 2. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord. Bless his name. Show forth his salvation from day to day. Glory to God. Psalm 98, 1. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. For he hath done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm hath wrought salvation for him. Psalms 149 and 1. Praise ye the Lord. Sing unto the Lord a new song. And his praise in the assembly of the saints. All of these admonitions came from psalmist and King David. However, singing a new song is also talked about in the very last book of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 5, 9, and 10. And listen to this. And they sing a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and didst purchase unto God with thy blood men of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and made them to be unto our God a kingdom and priests, and they reign upon the earth. And so we see that even in heaven, there's going to be the singing of new songs. And I don't believe those new songs were sung meekly or in a weak voice back in David's day. And I don't think they're going to be sung that way in heaven. Um, singing in the Bible was militant. Nehemiah 12, 27 through 43 tells us that. The tribe of Judah, they went out first in battle. They praised the Lord and sang. And the singers sang loudly when Nehemiah dedicated the wall of Jerusalem, so that the joy of Jerusalem was a herd afar off. Folks, militant singing pleases the angels. The devil don't enjoy it. I'd rather, I'd much rather please the angels and please the Holy Spirit. And we need to let that devil know that we mean what we sing. Let there be the ring of a king in our hearts when we sing. He's alive. He's alive, glory to God. He's alive. God wants the congregation to sing militantly as well as the leaders. And it's easy to come into church and be comfortable that when you walk out, all you want is a good dinner. And if somebody said, how was the service? And there was no militancy present. You could say, oh, it was okay. It was nice. But your mind is on lunch or dinner. And if you sing militantly, you'll get more out of the service and forget about your stomach. Folks, we're in warfare. And we're going to be in some heavy battles. And the church is tired of being pushed around by the devil. More Christians should begin to compose new courses to ask God for those new songs. Give the songs the Lord inspires to the song leader, the worship leader, 
or the pastor and tell them, come on, let's get with it. This is the way I feel about God. Get the people moving stronger and more militantly. Speak militantly. Not only should we sing militantly, but we should be speaking militantly. That's going to make enemies. I need to warn you, speak clearly and forcefully. And other people might tell you, say, you want to fight, don't you? Yep, I sure do. I want to fight the devil. And I want to fight evil. And I want to fight wrongdoing. And I don't think the church today as a whole has a militant speech pattern. And I don't believe that when many of us speak, people can tell which side we're on. The Bible says that Jesus didn't speak as the Pharisees, but that he spoke with authority as a commander has to speak. The Pharisees, they prided themselves on their reasoned speech, meaning perhaps the scripture means this, and perhaps it means that. And they took great pride in being able to comment on the law and the prophets and interpret the books of the Old Testament. They debated endlessly, but they never authoritatively spoke out the word in a spiritual sense. On the other hand, they were very rigid in holding to the works or the actions that came out of their interpretation whitewashing the outside while not observing the laws according to the Spirit. There was something about the voice of Jesus that was different from that of everybody else. And God wants us to speak with the authority that comes from knowing the Word. Some of you Christians ought to get in front of a mirror, look at and listen to themselves to see what other people are seeing when they're talking. God wants people today who will talk out of their spirits, talk out of their total being. And wherever you are, learn to speak with divine strength. Let the world know that you're one of the mighty children of God. There are people today who will say, you want to be careful of this, brother. He uses strong language. That ought to be talked about you. And you ought to say, yeah, that's right. I use the same kind of language that the apostle Paul used. You know, you can look through the dictionary for strong words and take that word can't out of your vocabulary. I say I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me in Philippians 4 and 13. Be a God pleaser. Learn to speak with power and with vigor. And we have to speak the truth with authority. And this is a time for speaking strong. This is a time to let the world know what we believe about certain things. And there's only one attitude you need to get into, and that is what the Lord told me years ago. Other people's heads are not the place for my happiness. In other words, people's opinions of me are not what should be influencing my actions in my life. And if you go around trying to please people, oh my goodness, the problems you're going to have, leave them all alone. Please God only. Say what he wants you to say. Be what he wants you to be. If you're going to be a man pleaser, you're never going to be a God pleaser. And this is the time to speak frankly and aggressively against sin. We have developed into a society today in which sin is not sin. Sin is my problem, my way of life, my choice, and on and on with terms that cover up right and wrong. Jesus 
wants us to know that we have finally gotten into an army, that we have finally put on the whole armor of God, and that finally the church is going to speak as Jesus spoke so the world will know where we stand. The world don't know where a lot of Christians stand today, but I want them to know where I stand. The Israelites who marched around the walls of Jericho on that seventh day certainly didn't speak in a soft voice. If they had, the battle would have been lost. And if we speak softly today, we're going to lose some battles. There are times in this life when you not only have to let the devil know how you feel about something, you have to let people know how you feel also. And you need to speak this way in every area of your life. And don't speak weakly and say silly things. Speak with strength. The Creator, whose epic story flows through the pages of Scripture, has begun to dissolve the strongholds of evil. And this new drama is being played out every hour around the globe, accompanied sometimes by mind-bending miracles. God has apparently decreed that plain folks like you and me are now a central part of an accelerated plan for a total transformation of the world. And that plan is centered around small clusters of loosely networked but highly committed Christian people who have been empowered to do extraordinary things. And I'm going to start by describing one such event. Listen to this. At 6 o'clock on an April evening in 2001, five-year-old R. John Jonke Doss died in New Delhi, India from an accidental electrocution. His parents took him to a medical clinic where they worked on his body for two hours without success. The doctor charged him 5,000 rupees, or about $110, and told him to call a mortician. Instead, they called Roderick at the nearby Deliverance Church. He then called upon Savitri, one of the staff members. And Savitri brought two other Christians to Arjun's home. And the five of them began praying over the dead body at 10 o'clock p.m. And they prayed their hearts out for six hours. And then at 4 a.m. the next morning, our John snapped back to life. No brain damage, no problem. Today, he's a normal eight-year-old. And Savitri is a 60-year-old widow, an untouchable, they call her, from the lowly Dom caste. She spent her life as a street sweeper, which made her in the caste system part of the lowest of the low. The broom was her livelihood. But she's a fine, humble lady, a former Hindu turned to Christ. And as we were parting, I asked Savitri through an interpreter, how many resurrections have you been involved with in the six years that you've been doing ministry? She answered quietly, 16. You're in a new world, folks. How long will it be before you start working some miracles yourself? A distinguished Indian evangelist named Saji Chalapa was on a mission trip to a village north of Madras when in the middle of the night he suddenly sensed God speaking to him, leave this house quickly and run away. 
Well, that ain't exactly a convenient thing to do, but Chalapa was used to accepting even strange instructions from the Lord without discussion. So he quickly dressed and ran into the darkness. After a while, he was in the open country. And then, as he passed beneath a large tree, he felt God tell him, Stay here and start to preach. Now, this was puzzling. There ain't nobody around him. Why did God want him to preach to an empty tree in the middle of the field in the middle of the night? But he stopped under the tree and began to preach the gospel. Finally, he reached the point at which he called on his unseen listeners to give their lives to Jesus. And he was surprised to hear a voice from the top of the tree and see a man climb down crying. And he tearfully gave his life to Jesus. And when asked what he was doing out there at night in the middle of nowhere, the man said, I'm going to hang myself. Glory to God. God is so good. For 21, here's another story. For 21 years, Mrs. Chang had laid in her bed at her home in China, unable to move her arms and legs. And finally, the pain got to be too much. And she asked her eldest son to take her to the hospital 40 miles away. The doctors there discovered that some of her organs were almost dead. So they advised the son, take her home so she can die with your family. But before she left, a Christian nurse came by her bed and slipped her a copy of the Gospel of Mark and told her, read this when you get home, she whispered. When Mrs. Chang got home, about the first thing she did was to ask her son to read something from the booklet. Opening it to page one, he began, This is the good news of Jesus Christ. And before he could read any further, Mrs. Chang's bones started to move. Within moments, she sat up completely healed. She promptly gave her life to the Lord. And the very next day, on her way to the village well to draw water, she was asked by everyone, Say, aren't you Mrs. Chang? What doctor healed you? We want to use him too. And Mrs. Chang invited all the women to her simple home. And when a large group had assembled, she stood up and began speaking. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. In only four weeks, all 600 people in the village decided to follow Jesus. When the report got around, a police force arrived to stamp out this new sect. They beat the villagers, they shot their animals, they burned their crops and left, thinking that would be the last they'd ever hear about Jesus Christ. But they were wrong. The 600 stood steadfast. And within four years, 70,000 had turned to Christ throughout that whole region. And the star of this story was the faithful and obedient nurse. She was a nobody responding to the love in her heart, reaching out, despite the risk, to an unimportant lady. May her obedience be sung and celebrated by millions. Glory to God. And I think of the missionary in Guatemala who simply read all of Isaiah 53 over and over 
to a circle of Indians silently mourning the death of a boy until he came back to life. You know, the real saints understand God's highest desires and they're willing to fight tooth and nail with fiery passion to make sure that will is accomplished. God wants you to take joint responsibility for what happens in this world. He didn't want you to just mumble a polite prayer, shrug your shoulders and say, well, it's out of my hands now. Remember Jesus's words in heaven to Samuel Cho as his father prayed in desperation over the boy's corpse. Jesus said, I can't keep you here, boy, because your father won't let you go. Delight yourself in the Lord and learn to enjoy life. Find your joy in him as he does in you. And that means you must learn to enjoy your quiet time with the Lord every day. And you hit trouble when you don't eagerly want to be with him. So center on him and use your spirit and not just your mind. Study the Bible. You can't become a mature Christian disciple unless your mind is transformed. And much of that transformation is going to come as you study the word of God. Read, mark, meditate on the word of God and then act on it. You aren't just trying to learn the Bible, but to know God through the Bible and become like him. Well, folks, I'm out of time. God bless you. And we'll see you next time, God willing. Can quench my thirsting soul Pure as water made me whole Let your streams of mercy flow Oh Jesus, I trust in you Though the mountains fall into the sea Though the rivers rise, I still believe Mercy stands and your word is true, oh Jesus, I trust in you. And when I face that darkest night, what will be my guiding light? The shining rays of red and white, Jesus, I trust. Seated for all time I am yours and you are mine Oh Jesus, I trust in you Though the mountains fall into the sea Though the rivers rise, I still believe For your mercy stands and your word is true Oh Jesus, I trust in you Though the mountains fall into the sea, though the rivers rise, I still believe. For your mercy stands and your word is true, oh Jesus, my Lord Jesus.
Jesus, I trust in you.